Hello and welcome to GradCast. My name is Evan Chin. I'll be one of your hosts today. And my co-host on this episode... It's me, Ariel Frame. I'm your co-host. Awesome. And we have uh, a guest today that we've been wanting to, to have on for quite some time. Um, a, a prodigal son, if you will, who has left and then returned to Western, sort of. Uh, please, uh, I am very pleased to welcome today Dr. James Steinhoff. How are you doing, James? Hey, Ariel and Yemen. Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, you graduated from your PhD last year. That's left right. on a postdoc to, uh, to, to lovely sunny Seattle. And um, as I understand it, due to certain complications from a certain pandemic, you have now found yourself back in, uh, in, in good old, the second best London in the world. Yeah, that's right. Well, we are uh, very happy to have you back here with us. Um, to start with, though, could you tell us a little bit about what your uh, dissertation research was on? Um, I understand you, you studied AI, but uh, you're not in any way, shape, or form a computer scientist. Um, how, how did that work out? Yeah, so I'm in media studies, uh, which is a mysterious discipline probably to a lot of people. Um, and People do a lot of different sorts of research in that. Um, yeah, and I'm not a technical AI computer science person. That, that is true. Um, so I, I was working in a framework probably best described as political economy of media, um, which centers on things like uh, labor, capital relations, ownership, you know, markets, and you know things things like that. So I was I was looking more accurately than than say it's more accurate to say I was looking at the AI industry rather than AI, um, specifically on people working in the industry, data scientists, um, machine learning engineers, that sort of thing. So sort of like the human element of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I guess the production of artificial intelligence, like like how it gets made. That that was my that's what got me interested in the first place. I'm thinking more like the birth of artificial intelligence, <laughs> if we can kind of think of them more intelligently. So, what, how, how did you? Let's just say, where did you, where did you end? What was your last step? What was your major thing that you took at the end of your, uh, end your, end of your PhD? Before I answer that, I want to just say, reply to one thing you said earlier, because I think we sure. we should do the opposite. We should consider AI as not being intelligent at all. Oh. Right. Um, actually, existing AI that's around us in the world is metaphorically intelligent at best. Right. What you actually have are like tools for solving particular problems. And in the, it's a big it's a big stretch um, to say that, that these things are smart or intelligent in any way that we would use the word to apply to a human or even an animal of some kind. So. That's one of the things, I guess that's the thing that I learned after reading, reading this for years and learning about this stuff for years. And uh, Matteo Pasquinelli has a nice like visual graphic article that recently came out where he talks about machine learning AI as a, what he calls a newoscope. It basically compares it to a microscope rather than an intelligence. It says it's mm -hmm. a tool for extracting information that is not readily available to the human sense uh, system. So I just wanted to get that out there early because I think it's a common, it's a common misconception 
uh, and people do it. Some people think it's, some people argue for that, but I, I would, I would argue against doing that. And also we should also just, before we get going too far, say that AI is not the same thing as a robot, right? So a robot. maybe let's, let's just clarify that distinction for those that maybe do think they're the same. Right. So a robot is a, you know, machine with a body of some sort of body, right? Uh, science fiction, C-3PO or whatever. Or, or Roomba. A Roomba, yeah. Or like, you know, more commonly in the world, like uh, arms in factories, right? Robot arms mm -hmm. that do manufacturing. Um, but AI is just software, right? AI does not necessarily have a body. It's, it's not intelligent, doesn't have a body. It's not humanoid. It's just a program. Uh, and you know, machine learning, like the hot kind of AI that's in use today, is like a statistical means of extracting patterns from large quantities of data. That's what it. That's what it really is from a zero height perspective. So it's it sounds a little bit like you're saying like even the the name itself, artificial intelligence, is just a misnomer that was like kind of displaced somehow. How, how did yeah, that happen? Well, it was the term got coined in the fifties with. Uh, like a workshop, early workshop, or a bunch of people were interested in this sort of thing, got together. And I think it was like John McCarthy, one of the early AI people who proposed this name. And it was pretty controversial. Uh, and a lot of people thought it was stupid. And there were a lot of other options that were proposed. And it stuck though. And it's still still with us, bothering all sorts of people. So maybe because it's catchy, you know, it's it's punchy. <laughs> People, it elicits a response in people. I know that even people didn't want to say that animals were intelligent. And now, now that's kind of not that controversial. They have right. capacities, <laughs> but it was yeah. like, no, 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 don't you anthropomorphize an animal? And now we're like, what? Anthropomorphizing beyond animals, even machines. Right. And people are still, I guess. Well, not even machines. It's just code. It's software. just code. <laughs> yep. Like yeah. I, miss, I just made the, made the, the, the mistake right there. Uh, I've also heard the term artificial general intelligence. Is there like, is like, I mean, maybe I'm just floating out random pops oh, I, nope, terms, no, but maybe that's a uh, more applicable. Maybe some people make the distinction that that is actually what might, if there ever was something that was truly intelligent, that's what the term we've got to use. Is that right? Yeah, I would agree that that is the term for like, you know, something approximating human level intelligence, which can be applied to different domains. That's what the general means there. And yeah, that was a science fiction thing until, I mean, that was the original goal of AI back when it was founded in the 1950s was to make general intelligence. Although they didn't call it that then. It is now a serious topic of research again, probably in the last 10 years or so. Uh, there are, there's money from like, you know, Google is actively researching AGI. Um, uh, OpenAI is a, uh, independent-ish, independent, -ish, independent uh, research institute funded, originally founded with money from Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Amazon and stuff. Um, they actually just entered into a partnership with Microsoft and their explicit goal is to create gen general intelligence. So maybe 15 years ago, that was a huge, it was a fringe thing you would be judged for talking about uh, in academics. And, uh, and it's now, yeah, there's millions of dollars being sunk into research on that right now, although it is still not the, the mainstream. I actually, I, I, is it, it, was it intentional to use the word sunk in that way? Do you think, do you think there's not a, not, maybe is it sinking the money when they put it in there or is there actually like value coming out of it? How do you feel about the, the, the money being spent on this? 
I mean, I, I, I don't think it's logically impossible to make machine AGI. No, I think that is totally possible. Um, I'm not an expert enough to say how, how soon or, or if that's going to actually happen. Uh, I do know that very little of the stuff, the AI, AGI research has been commercialized as far as I know. Um, that's, that's, that's really all I can say about it. Well, can you tell us a little bit, like what's the difference between a general, like actually truly smart intelligence um, and the sort of dumb AI that you were talking about earlier? Well, one way of distinguishing is, is so general, meaning that it's um, domain agnostic, right? In, in theory, human intelligence can be applied to as many domains as we can think of, right? So that people would call that general intelligence. Um, people typically refer to the actual AI that exists in the world uh, as narrow AI because it is specialized for one particular domain and usually a task within that domain, right? Uh, a, a program like uh, maybe you heard about AlphaGo, uh, this thing that plays the ancient uh, strategy board game called Go. Um, DeepMind, this company which is owned by Alphabet, a uh, machine learning system that you know destroyed the grandmasters, right? But that mm -hmm. system is not going to be able to do face recognition or understand text, you know, uh, or extract sentiment from data or advise you on ad clicks, right? Um, it's not one magic al algorithm that can do all these different things. So it can only do one thing, but it can do that one thing um, beyond sort of human capabilities. Yeah, in certain domains, uh, okay. existing AI exceeds human capacities, uh, I think. Yeah, recognizing I, certain things in photos, uh, you know, very, very narrow tasks. But, you know, you listen to people who play Go and they say, oh, well, what was amazing about this Alpha Go and how it beat this grandmaster is there was this one move um, and it was creative. And then a lot of people pointed that as, okay, this seems to be showing that it's possible to make a creative artificial intelligence. Maybe this opens the door to artificial general intelligence happening. I mean, it's possible. I don't have really a strong opinion on it, but um, the, the idea of making AI creative again goes back to the 1950s. It was one of the original things talked about at this workshop. Um, one of the reasons why I don't have a strong opinion on it is that cre creativity is not well-defined uh, at all. Because um, it, you know, is it, is, is something creative if it, if it is surprising to you? Right, like that move, it's, it's surprising. Was it creative? I don't know. There's a lot of things that could be surprising to someone uh, depending on their knowledge. You know, or, you know, can creativity simply be, can that be impl implemented in an AI just by introducing some sort of randomness or pseudo randomness? I know there are some, there's some people working on that sort of thing. There's a whole subfield of computational creativity, which uh, I'm not super well informed on. But I know some people do argue what you're saying, that you uh, would need to make an AI have some level of creativity. Other people have talked about imagination in a sort of similar vein, artificial mm -hmm. imagination, like uh, constructing hypotheticals and models, uh, test scenarios. Okay, so it, it, it's, uh, you know, maybe it's possible, maybe the problem isn't really well-defined, so it's hard to say yet. How do you think we're going to uh, adapt uh, 
given something like this is developed, um, regardless of how it is developed? Uh, I guess my focus is is even um, a little more, a little narrower than that. I my research is focused primarily on actually existing AI, so on much more mundane and boring stuff than than AGIs uh, as coworkers. Um, more about what what what's going on right now and in the in the near future. So, what is going on right now? Well, a lot of things are being automated with machine learning. <laughs> okay. Is this a good thing or a bad thing or no, or neutral? <laughs> um, all three. Okay. I guess. Wow, that's a very academic answer. <laughs> okay, well maybe uh, let's let's start with the good. What's good about it? Well, this is a extremely, you know, pedestrian answer, but uh eliminating, you know, boring and and uh unpleasant kinds of work, right? Um an example people in the AI industry from my, my experience love to bring up about automation and how it's good, and I agree with this one, is uh, things like, uh, you know, like a phone tree you may go through, like a number click through on a phone tree. Yeah, yeah. Right? So one of their arguments is that if you could have a nice machine learning powered chatbot that you had a normal conversation with, it still saves on labor costs, so the company is happy, but the user, I mean, th those those things are universally hated, right? Clicking through one of those phone trees, <laughs> nobody wants to do that, and also no one really wants to be doing the other end of the job either. I don't think. I mean, no one really wants to listen to angry customers and <laughs> and give them refunds, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. not fun either. So, so for the for the the customer and, and and the and the worker, I mean, some jobs, yeah. Let's 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 get rid of them, right? Okay. So that's good. I can Why see how that, that I can see how that would be applicable in a number of different different scenarios. Um, uh, I, I, when you when you start with that, it almost sounds like oh, this is amazing. This is just going to make everything better. Well, what, why don't you bring our attention now to to what would be bad? Well, so the basic the basic thing is that the technologies don't function in a vacuum. They function within a, a socio political economic context. However, you want how many ever factors you want to include there. Um, and in the world that we live in, uh, currently, one of the overriding factors is, is capitalism. And that compels competition between organizations. And uh, one of the ways that competition between capitalist organizations manifests is in cutting labor costs, right, to, to make, uh, be competitive. And so historically, that one way to cut labor costs is to replace labor with machines. And when you have machines that can do new things, you have the application of machines to new markets, uh, new labor markets and new modes of automation, new tasks being automated. So you can imagine where I'm going with this in terms of AI. Um, so that taking jobs, they're taking our jobs, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, 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 that is the, the worrying prospect. Uh, um, and not but you're talking you're talking about not jobs that people don't want anymore because we were because it was they're taking our jobs this is a good thing because we didn't want those jobs but now the good thing the bad thing is also they're taking our jobs but these are now jobs that that we do want well people presumably need to eat so uh <laughs> oh so all of our jobs is now the, is now the important thing well i mean currently everyone needs a job to eat um so 
I'm just talking about the the overall overall you know worry would be something about the fact that you need a job to get food to live and the fact that systemically there is a uh, a history of applying machines to eliminate or intensify jobs and not just eliminate them but like intensification is another way machines are applied to intensify existing jobs to speed them up and make them more sort of taxing so you said this is like a current you said you know you know not not talking about stuff that's necessarily hypothetical you're saying this is happening a lot of this stuff you're concerned about is happening right now do we know where this is happening i mean first thing that comes to mind is like i don't know an amazon work warehouse where they're having to I hear about that in the news. Is that applicable? What's ha- where is this currently happening? If it is, um, so uh, yeah, it's it's happening anywhere that there's is big data. People are trying to uh, like large quantities of digital data. People are trying to apply machine learning. Um, the Amazon warehouses are yeah, a pretty like dystopian one. I don't know if you've heard about um, these wristbands that they have for the workers. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> they have these wrist wristbands that will sort of physically nudge the worker's hand, like give it stimulus on which direction to go to maximize picking up boxes and things. What? <laughs> yeah, because it's it's very hard to get a robot manipulator to uh, deal with all the different sizes and textures and, and softness of boxes. So they're essentially using um, big data gathered from different sources and to inform this thing to basically automate human into the machine that the machine the, oh the, the machine God. they don't have wow. yeah so they're driving humans with the ai we become the robot oh mm-hmm. man yeah that's one of the scary like really crazy ones out there um there's also uh oh i just i just shared this on facebook a while ago but there there is um a company who is taking advantage of the work from home trend during the pandemic to make this uh an app which surveils people working from home, not just like their like their camera footage, uh, as well as all their clicks. Like everything is monitored to generate productivity scores, and so bosses can have a live uh, sort of on the like a live uh, metric. Uh, like they usually have these view screens. A lot of applications like this they'll have a visualization called a dashboard where management can. Uh, observe in, in like ongoing live fine grained detail, uh, you know, how employee X relates to this person on different metrics. Mm-hmm. And so then in, you know, in your studies with the AI industry, um, like, what do these people think? What are they saying? What's the sort of um, mood? What's the, the mindset um, in, in this field? So the people I talk to, it was it was interestingly um, ambivalent because huh. they were largely aware and um, and largely were you know moderately concerned about the long term prospects of of automation on jobs um, even even as they were aware that they were producing the technology that like the means for doing this that would be like the average some people didn't care at all some people thought it's fine some people were extremely concerned about it but on average it was a mix uh, of, of both both views, but the most interesting takeaway from, from my research was finding out that the work that goes into making AI is itself already being automated with hmm. the application of AI. 
um, particularly machine learning. So that was interesting for me because um, we often think that the, you know, the most likely kinds of work that will be automated are uh, simple routine jobs, right? That's what they say, simple tasks and one that are routine or, or repetitive. Right, like um, phone menus. Yeah, right. And so, you know, up, like plumbing is not likely to be automated anytime soon because it involves, I mean, beyond the physical actual labor, every house is different, right? So it's not actually that routine. Uh, but uh, making, making machine learning AI turns out to be being automated with machine learning, even though uh, it, it currently has not been made into a routine sort of work. Mm. There's a lot of um, experimentation, trial and error. People working in the field often refer to it as like a dark art because it hasn't been like, there's no textbook saying this is the one best way because often the different domains it's applied in require completely different solutions. Yeah, and so and I, this, this, this was pretty shocking to me was that right, machine learning works by extracting patterns from data, but it turns out that the, the sort of trial and error process that goes into making a machine learning system, um, that also generates data, right? And then you can recursively apply, apply machine learning on the data of producing machine learning. Mm. So despite the fact of it not being a well chopped up and, and codified and understood job, mm. uh, it is being automated. And I don't know if that sounds significant to you, but in, um, it's interesting if, if you study the political economy and, and, and labor and automation, one of the things that usually happens before um, uh, we call labor process gets automated is that it gets studied and codified like chopped up into the best way. Uh, Taylorism, you may have heard of, right? Scientific management. I don't know um, what Taylorism actually is. <laughs> okay, so it's um, this guy, Frederick Taylor, who in the 19th century started studying uh, manual laborers um, and taking stills and studying exactly how they did every minute motion. And he would study these and then figure out the fastest, most efficient way to do any task down to like the very finest detail. And then management could then prescribe that to the workers and tell them, this is how you do it, right? This is the best way. Um, it's sort of like a precursor to the assembly line style where everyone does basically one small thing, but they do it in a very standardized way. Yeah, exactly. And then that allows it to be um, automated later because you have each step finally figured out how to do, bop, bop, bop makes it easier to automate. So my interesting conclusion was, my, my argument at least, is that the automation of machine learning, which they're, they're calling auto ML, um, is, is, is proceeding without this step of, of standardizing and codifying the labor process. So it's skipping over it by extracting a solution from the data. So is that just saying uh, we're gonna accelerate the process where we're gonna get to um, the negative externalities that you talked about, the, the bad stuff is going to start accelerating faster. That, yeah, I think, I think that's the argument. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> is that if, if this, um, this, this type of automation, which I, I am tentatively calling synthetic automation, uh, if that 
is generalizable to uh, lots of other kinds of labor processes. You know, if we have the right sensors and they can collect the right data, that this sort of thing can can happen widely. Then, then yes, then you know the the worst fears of people talking about jobs apocalypse and robots taking our jobs and all that. It, it, it could be a way that, that those things, those sort of fears might be realized. So could you tell us, um, so you did, your, you did your PhD and you published some stuff from there. And since then, you've also apparently been working on a book where it's out, come out soon or has just come out. Can you be able maybe tell us about your writing and uh, how you've included some of these concepts that we've been talking about? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I defended um, November, last November. Previously last year with uh, my supervisor, ex-supervisor, I guess, Nick Darwitherford and a colleague uh, Ali Kiosin, we, we uh, wrote, co-wrote a book on AI and capitalism called Inhuman Power. Um, that had some related topics there, but it was sort of more uh, macro level. Uh, and my dissertation was sort of zoomed in on the, the, the actual the production process, labor process. And yeah, I'm working on uh, turning that into a book right now. Is there, do you have a working title that people are going to be able to Google? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not much to see about it on the internet yet, but it, it will be called Automation and Autonomy, uh, Labor, Capital, and Machines in the Artificial Intelligence Industry. Excellent. So I got, I got to ask, uh, based on all your work with the uh, AI industry and with you know, uh, these ideas of labor and replacement. Um, what is your sort of personal outlook in, into the future? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Are, are you optimistic of our, our, our chances against, you know, the, uh, the robot overlords? I'm not worried about robot overlords. I'm worried about uh, non-AGI AI being used to, uh, you know, in, intensify trends like platformization of labor, the Uberization of labor, uh, where people are governed by algorithms rather than, you know, an actual boss and they just get sent around to do things. And things like the Amazon warehouses uh, and th those sorts of creepy things. And, um, and, and, and immediate things like, like the work from home trend and businesses are realizing they don't have to pay for chairs or offices for people anymore. Um, and how, how, how is AI going to be involved in that for surveillance and who knows? So uh, I don't know. There are, there are some, there's some hope for optimism uh, in that people involved in the AI industry right and um are starting to take their employers to task for a number of things i don't know if uh, people have heard of the word like the tech lash which is sort of the wider societal um rage against the the tech companies which are the ai companies right google amazon facebook etc um so a lot of people around the world have been getting you know sort of pissed off with the oversteps of these companies you know, as a litany of things, I'm not going to talk about those. So that is that is a sign there. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's platform, the you know candidate for the U.S. president, was 
really uh, one of her big things was sort of uh, dismantling the big tech companies because they have too much power. Uh, and hers is sort of from a, like a liberal, pers liberal democratic perspective, they are stifling sort of creativity, things like that, which may or may not be true. So they're, you know, I don't know. The companies who are making AI are going to want, want to use it to make a lot of money, and they are already. So the question is whether they're going to continue to do that or someone's going to stop them. Because I don't believe that self-regulation in the industry is going to do anything productive. Hmm. So, so basically someone should stop them. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, that's what I would say. Yeah, and like the employees making the AI have, have done the first good steps. I don't know. Uh, if you have heard of things like uh, Google was involved in uh, like a, something, something involved with the US military making drone vision sort of under the table. And um, their employees found out, massively protested it, Google dropped the contract, right? So things, things are happening with people working in this industry, realizing that they don't wanna work, they don't wanna give stuff to the military, they don't wanna make technology for ICE or for the police. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's there's some prospects that that, that they are being forced to do things, um, and Amazon, IBM, uh, maybe Microsoft recently announced in the wake of the this Black Lives Matter um, protests across the states and, and across the world, they, they announced that they would uh, put a moratorium on facial recognition software, mm -hmm. um, as you know, and it's not like forever. It's not. It's more of a and probably a PR move if you're critical. It's temporary and it's like we're not going to sell it to cops for a year. Okay. So, um, but we'll see what happens in the long term with that. Right. So basically, the, the trend is looking like it's going towards dystopia, but there are glimmers of hope. That's a good, that's a nice way to sum it up. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that, then, um, thank you very much for joining us here today, for sharing your time and your expertise. Thanks for listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, with my co-host, Gimin Chen, and we've been speaking with James Steinhoff. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere, basically, uh, at GradCast Radio. Uh, you want to listen to us. Uh, all our archived episodes are available at gradcast.ca on our website. Um, and uh, any podcast app that you have, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, wherever, we're available there, GradCast Radio. And uh, we even have select episodes on YouTube uh, if you look for GradCast Radio there. So with that, thanks for listening to GradCast. <laughs>